0: This is a McKillop podcast. Welcome to Exploring Curiosity, Resiliency, and Hope, a podcast for times of challenge and transformation. We are excited for your presence as we learn, grow, and evolve from a multitude of voices and wisdom. This is a space for conversations and curiosity, finding ways to be resilient with all that is happening in our personal lives and the world, and maybe finding an embodied hope to live by. We join our host, Trevor, in conversation with Dr. Sean Wilde, a nine-year veteran in the emergency department of the Chinook Regional Hospital in Lethbridge, Alberta. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Sean has taken to Twitter, Facebook, blogging and other social media to ensure everybody in the community gets the data and encouragement to work towards the common good. We hear his experience as a doctor and how he is hoping to help all of us support our medical system to find resiliency during these trying times.
1: I actually wrote a paper in 2000 on DNA vaccines in the year 2000 in one of my classes because I was interested in it. It was a new and evolving technology. And I wrote a paper that kind of explained how they work and why this was a good candidate for the rapid development of an effective vaccine against a dangerous new disease sometime in the future. That's what my paper was about. And this was 20 years ago.
0: Sean grew up in rural Alberta and throughout his life has lived in multiple different communities within the province. He attended the University of Lethbridge where he received a bachelor's degree in biochemistry and met his wife. He spent a few years working in various biomedical research facilities at the University of Calgary before deciding to pursue medical school. Sean obtained his medical degree at the University of Calgary and completed a family medicine residency training program based out of Southern Alberta. He then went on to complete an extra year of specialized emergency medicine training and has now been working in the Lethbridge Emergency Department for nine years. Sean lives with his family in Lethbridge, including three teenage children. He enjoys cycling through a variety of hobbies and recreational activities, including skiing, hiking, riding, woodworking, electronic stinkering, and board gaming, some of which he is okay at and others at which he is not.
2: I'd like to say I was pleased to have uh, Dr. Sean Wild on today, Um, but we're in the middle of a pandemic and I deeply appreciate he's making time to talk with us today about his experience in the uh, Chinook Regional Hospital emergency room and with uh, COVID and his wisdom and and why he's talking about it today. So uh, welcome, Sean, to the program and um, how are you today?
1: Uh, thanks, Trevor. Good to be here. I am doing fairly well. Thank you. Oh, good. What, what
2: would you like folks to know about you as we begin this, this conversation?
1: Well, I guess, first, while you're talking to me, uh, as near as I can tell, uh, I, uh, I am, as you mentioned, I'm a physician working in the emergency department of the Chinook Regional Hospital here in Lethbridge. I'm pretty much a lifelong Albertan, uh, born here, spent most of my life living in various parts of the province. Uh, I went to the University of Lethbridge for my undergraduate degree in biochemistry. I spent a few years working in various labs in biomedical research uh, of one form or another. Uh, I completed med school in Calgary. And did some residency training through southern Alberta, Calgary, Edmonton. Uh, trained in f- rural family medicine and then an extra year of uh, ER training. And then ended up uh, in the emergency department here. Uh, I have a wife and three teenage kids uh, live here in Lethbridge. And uh, I think I've ended up on this program because I've been somewhat vocal on social media and occasionally in uh, mainstream media interviews, in speaking out about the pandemic and specifically uh, uh, current conditions as they change uh, in the south zone, particularly in Lethbridge. And so, uh, the the reason that I that I've been doing this, I think is, I think there's a a large gap of of information understanding out there in this pandemic. It's it's not a really visible pandemic to most people. Uh, Most of the effects are seen within hospitals or within families of those who are affected. And the reality can be, I think, invisible to a lot of people. And so I thought it was important to just share a little bit of the perspective from time to time of what we see working on the front lines, uh, what the reality is, because there are certainly conflicting and dissenting voices out there. And I felt it was helpful to help people know what's going on so they can uh essentially so I can kind of you know tell the truth about it is in a sense so that people can have the information they need to make personal decisions family decisions and uh, uh, political decisions as necessary uh, about what's going on
2: as we journey our way towards that I, I have sort of a lighter question to start with if that's okay um, mm-hmm. I'm curious what drew you to to go into um medicine and then become a doctor and then finally to the, uh, the emergency department.
1: Sure. Well, that's the question they ask you when you apply to med school: <laughs> Why do you want to do this? So, I've answered it before. Uh, and looking back uh, from this point, uh, it it wasn't a given. I uh, I've had a, a lifelong kind of interest in sciences, and I've always had a bit of an academic bent, um, been a little bit of the the nerd uh, that in that sense. Uh, and as I said, I, I toyed with a career in in research and and tried that for a while, and I found it interesting, but it just it didn't quite fit me. Uh, I was looking for something that would provide, uh, I guess at the time, a more stable career for my, my young family, uh, research is not always, a, a really stable option. There's a lot of mm-hmm. looking for someone to pay you for what you're interested in learning <laughs> yeah. about. Uh, and I wanted to do something that was giving back to the community and that I could feel like I was, I guess being helpful and, uh. uh putting my skills uh, to good use for those around me. And, and medicine seemed like a great place to, to try that out. And so I I gave it a shot and it was successful in my applications. And then throughout my training, I found that the ER was a good fit for me. So here I am.
2: So before um, March 13th, 2019, or before the pandemic came, what, what was your usual day in the emergency room? What, what did it feel like?
1: Well I don't know if there's a usual day <laughs> in the ER. <laughs> okay. well, uh, there are to... certainly some typical uh, experiences and part of the thing that those of us who enjoy it like is a little bit of the unpredictability right? You kind of never know what's gonna come through the door and we have certainly an interest in being adaptable and responsive to whatever shows up uh, but Typically, Lethbridge is what we would call a regional uh, center, so we're not the big trauma center like the Foothills Hospital, um, but we're we're also not the you know the the rural hospital or the community hospital yeah. in the city. We kind of deal with uh, whatever happens in our zone that we need to deal with. We are a level three trauma center, so we see a little bit of everything. We see you know the minor walk-ins, people mm. who can't get into their family doctor or don't have one, and just need help with whatever a minor medical issue or a worry or a prescription Uh, we see trauma we see heart attacks strokes so a given day you could see any number of things there's slower days and there's busier days Uh, and really it's just we just respond to what's coming in and do our best to take care of people and uh, sort them where they need to be in the hospital or in the community maybe with some follow-up.
2: So a lot of what you've been speaking out about has been what you've experienced with the pandemic here at the hospital in Lethbridge. What's been your overall experience through the different waves? Could you unpack if it's changed or if, you know, has staff stress levels changed or what? what, what is your experience?
1: Yeah, it's definitely been an evolution. And I think that probably everyone could kind of tell their own story of their life from March 2020 onwards uh, and how it's changed. And certainly it's no different uh, in the hospital. So my uh, pandemic experience, if you like, Probably started earlier than most people because mm-hmm. I was kind of watching it earlier on. It was it was probably in December of 2019 that I was first paying a little more attention to it. It's not unusual to hear about a new virus outbreak somewhere. It happens from time to time, and often nothing major comes of it. Uh, but I was kind of paying attention to this one, and I remember hearing that, you know, the, in China they had built, it was one or two new hospitals in 10 days to deal with this. And that was my first thought that, I wonder if this is something different than what we've seen before, and maybe I'll keep an eye on it. Uh, and I've been, one of the things that I've I used uh, Twitter for previously was almost exclusively uh, just to follow um, what we call MedTwitter, which is a uh, Uh, various medical experts who post uh, medical education and other things on Twitter. So I kind of was keeping an eye on there as a lot of these people are very connected to what was going on around the world and started hearing reports, particularly from Italy and other parts of Europe uh, when they started to have their their more serious outbreaks there. And so I was kind of keeping an eye on that early in 2020 and starting to, you know, locally try and sound the alarm a little bit, at least of like, let's pay attention to this. Um, and uh, I recall I had even told my kids about a week before it happened that you know what, you guys might have school canceled at some point this year, this is, this is a possibility. <laughs> yeah. And then when it did happen, it happened very quickly. So the first wave in Southern Alberta, it was really a, I think it was a surreal experience for everyone, kind of this, yes. this sudden shutdown, This no one knew what was going on, uh, why well, there's no toilet paper, uh, <laughs> and, and what's what's happening, what's going to happen, a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. And so I was experiencing that same thing as everyone else was, uh, and at the same time, feeling like, okay, this is going to you know come through us first, right? We're the, the front line of when yep. things happen, so we're going to see it first. So my experience of that was also mixed with a bunch of meetings uh, you know, with, with the hospital, with my colleagues, trying to decide what are we gonna do when this happens? How are we gonna change our practice to protect ourselves, protect our patients? Uh, And a lot of the first wave was we didn't have tests at that point for COVID. We didn't really know how much it had spread locally. We know it was in Alberta in places, but we didn't know if we had it down here. It was still the tail end of flu season. So we were seeing people with the flu still. And... We And we didn't really know what to expect and how to treat it. And we spent a lot of time watching places like New York and that were affected earlier on to try and get some tips of what do we do if we get a sick COVID patient that comes in. And in the end, we didn't have much in the first wave. And all of Alberta it was pretty low. Uh, and our experience in the ER here was actually very much of a uh, – it was dead. Um, people stopped coming in. Uh, this was seen throughout the world uh, – it was a strange effect in that all the usual bad things that happened just seemed to either stop happening or people weren't coming anymore. We didn't see many heart attacks, strokes, accidents, everything kind of dried up. I think that was partly due to behavior changes. People were not doing high risk activities, not getting injured, not spreading any illnesses. And part of it was people were afraid or worried or whatever reason were avoiding coming in. And there was certainly some delayed presentations of stuff that probably should have come in. Uh, So, so that was kind of the first wave. Experience was we didn't get a lot happening here, uh, but we learned a lot from looking at other places, and mm-hmm. we certainly made the plans and the preparations for what 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 will we do when it when it does come here. Uh, the second wave, so that was kind of fall twenty twenty into January.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, it, you know, it was similar to the first in that most of Alberta's cases were in Calgary and Edmonton. We certainly had more here at that point than we did previously. And I believe this was the wave that really hit our long-term home care population quite hard. Uh, This was when uh, COVID's high mortality among seniors was really kind of hit home in Alberta. Uh, I don't recall us having a lot of ICU strain at the time as most of our severe cases were in the sicker or the elderly, the sort of people that don't really come to the ICU because they're not going to benefit from it. They're too frail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That kind of care is not going to help them. Uh, and that's where we saw a lot of the damage, I think in our community
2: and that was with the covid classic variant still mm-hmm. as they yeah. still wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and it was certainly was less severe in younger mm-hmm. people than what we are currently seeing with newer variants yeah. Uh, And of course, at this point, we're getting the pandemic fatigue like everyone else. Mm -hmm. For us, it was a lot of waiting and nothing happening in a sense, (laughs) Um, but knowing it could get worse at any moment. Uh, And so struggling a little bit with how much do we need to be locked down? Because that's causing harm. We have families. We want our kids to have a a life, but, uh, and we know people that are suffering in the community with work and businesses, you know, it's all real, real real downsides to the pandemic and but we also saw that people who are sick were really sick and we didn't have any immunity and we needed to keep people safe yeah and this was when and vaccinations were already available uh, towards the end of the second wave this is when we started vaccinating our high risk population and healthcare providers. And I remember I received my first dose of vaccine on December 31st. It seemed like a very oh. appropriate way to end 2020. <laughs> like here, let's get this vaccine going and end yeah. this issue.
2: <laughs> and and it feels so long ago, but in some ways it's like getting a vaccine that fast is amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. to it seems like people are expecting um, Miracles, and in a way, it was a miracle, but to get a vaccine that quickly when the pandemic was only in its first year.
1: Yeah, it really was uh, uh, miraculous, is a good way to put it. Um, But I mean, and I've looked into this too, because a lot of people, of course, are concerned you know, how is it ready so fast? Do they cut corners? And, And another interesting thing that maybe has pushed me to speak out a little bit about this is I actually. I, I dug through my old university stuff because I know I, had, I learned about this. I actually wrote a paper in 2000 on DNA vaccines in the year 2000 mm. in one of my classes because I was interested in it. It was a new and evolving technology. And I wrote a paper that kind of explained how they work and why mm-hmm. this was a good candidate for the rapid development of an effective vaccine against a dangerous new disease sometime in the future. That's mm. what my paper was about. And this was 20 wow. years ago. So... And I had kind of not been watching the field, and I didn't really know well, what had become of those. <laughs> and then I found out that, oh, they've you know they used it for Ebola, and they're using it now uh, for COVID. And I did some reading, and it turns out that it was way back, I think it was in January, uh, that the first researchers in China had isolated uh, the genetic code of the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus And actually, in one weekend, they had developed the DNA or the RNA vaccine uh, sequence that we're now using. It was really, the technology was in existence. They actually made the vaccine in one weekend. And Mm -hmm. all the time after that was just the development and the testing of it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And the thing that people don't realize I have a science background too, a lot longer. I'm older than you. (laughs) But um, all this is, this is research has been going on for decades. And it, and uh, it sort of, it's a culmination that the COVID nineteen provided to bring it into application.
1: Yeah, and they were being used, I believe, before for Ebola. It's just yeah. this brought it into the the public's awareness. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, so then we went into the third wave.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, just to get back, uh, so the third wave. Yeah, that was what spring twenty twenty one. Uh, and this was a frustrating one. Uh, I think it was the first one that a lot of us in healthcare felt was a direct result of trying to reopen too quickly uh, with a vaccination program that was just a little too far behind, as well as not recognizing that we were now getting the the UK variant, or the Alpha uh, variant, uh, yeah. that was becoming dominant, and it was a little more infectious, and uh, which makes a bit a little more infectious makes a big difference in how quickly it spreads. And we never really dropped down to a trivial number of cases after the second wave. Um, And we still had hospital patients in hospital. Uh, It was really kind of this race to get people vaccinated because we were just starting to open vaccinations up to everybody. And we were trying to get enough people vaccinated before case counts got so high that people were getting sick. And it really felt like a lot of the policy was kind of shooting us in the foot because things were... Just reopening, even just a matter of weeks too early uh, to get you know good vaccine coverage for those who wanted to get it right away. And I recall admitting a lot of people to hospital who were within the first two weeks of getting their first dose of vaccine. And I think that's a result of the of the COVID wave was spreading just ahead of the vaccination coverage. And it would have been nice if we had just been a little more patient there. That would have, I think really dulled or uh, diminished that wave uh, more than we saw.
2: And so what was it like for you in the ER then with the third wave?
1: This one was different locally in that we kind of led it provincially. Uh, In the first two waves, we didn't have a lot in the south zone or we were kind of lagging. The third wave, uh, Lethbridge Lethbridge and area were kind of leading the way in new cases as the wave started up. And I actually ended up, kind of speaking to the media about this at some point and and mentioned that and spoke on a few uh, television networks and uh, and posted some things on social media that went viral uh, just so that people knew that because again this was a case where I don't know I don't think people knew that people were used to the first two waves where this was a big city problem Lethbridge had some but it wasn't too bad and they could get away with bending the rules a little bit and not being too careful and and you were okay because there wasn't a ton in the community and so I was trying to let people know that hey this is a little different different. different. We actually have the most in Alberta currently. uh, And uh, it didn't stay that way. It spread elsewhere as well. And it wasn't long after that, that our local rate kind of stabilized. I don't know if that had anything to do with what I said, but there were certainly others spreading the message as well. And I think people started to realize that, that, okay, this is affecting our community more than past waves had. Um, The other memorable part of this wave is that uh, we stopped seeing it in the elderly. Uh, and this is because they had been vaccinated early. They were two, three, four months post being vaccinated and they weren't getting sick. Uh, the The vaccines were working very well against the early variants and the wild type strain at this point. And so we really saw that in the cases. We weren't seeing a lot of, and provincially that showed out too in the data that we're not a lot of, you know, 80 plus, 70 plus people getting sick in that wave. So I really think that was a, a testament to the, efficacy of the vaccination program and the the vaccines
2: and then did you have the best summer ever
1: (laughs) i was a little worried about (laughs) this summer Uh, you know yes it was the end of the third wave that we we first started to feel a lot of that pushback too from the people who were who were sick of covid for whatever reasons and we started to see the protests and the convoys and that became a, definitely a drain on healthcare workers and you know we understood we were sick of it too we all wanted to go back to normal um but again when you and, and we have the benefit of being able to see what's happening uh, to the patients that come in whereas most people don't see it so it's a little bit understandable but but that's kind of when we feel like this started this pushback
2: and did Lethbridge have um, any actually protests or show up at the hospital around that time?
1: There was there was one day that there was a small group that yeah did come to protest in front of the hospital and they were actually right under the intensive care unit. Uh, That's when they were right. There. And yeah, that was. You know, a few of us spoke out about that and about yeah, how yeah, Doctor
2: and Doctor Spence is a uh, ICU mm-hmm. intern, intern internist. Yes. I remember, yeah, and he had some words about that too.
1: Yeah, it was quite disheartening. It wasn't a large group of people, and but it yeah. was kind of before that started to become a thing uh, in yeah. other parts of the country. Yeah,
2: and so when someone came in in the third wave to the, your ICU and you suspected they have COVID, what what? what can you talk about how they were, what their energy was like, or have you noticed a change in patients over this wave too? We're going to get to the fourth wave here in a second, mm-hmm.
1: but. Uh, I mean, someone with severe COVID has medically, it's kind of always been the same sort of thing. Uh, you know, it's, it tends to start pretty mild and some people stay that way and they get better. The majority of people stay that way and get better. Um, some of them, a good number of people just feel really sick for several weeks and take a long time to recover but never get sick enough to need to come into hospital. There's others that are struggling to breathe, struggling to get around the house without getting short of breath or even turn over in bed without getting short of breath and they're usually getting lower oxygen levels. It's It's been a hallmark of COVID. We can kind of, we could diagnose it often in some people without the swab result and simply because of how profoundly low their oxygenation levels are. that's not something that we typically see really with anything else routinely. Uh, and, and so these people are just very weak, um, very short of breath. Sometimes they feel okay when they're just sitting in bed, but they just can't really get up and do anything. And they need fairly high levels of oxygen. Uh, early in the pandemic, we were uh, told to maybe intubate these people early uh, to help protect their lungs. Over time, the evidence has showed that it's probably best to wait until they need need the respiratory support, but we'll offer high-flow oxygenation in various, with various strategies. And so some people come into hospital and they just need this for a few days or a few weeks and they turn turn the corner. Um, but those who get sicker, at this point, they can get sick very quickly. Uh, if someone comes in, uh, who is needing more than just a couple of liters of low-flow oxygen in the nose, Um, usually they get worse by the hour uh, and continue to get worse uh, often until they need the intensive care unit. And it happens very quickly. Uh, I think they just kind of get to a tipping point where their lungs just are not dealing with it. They're getting stressed. They're getting hardened. They're developing something called uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, and they're just not able to auction it on their own anymore. Wow.
2: Yep. So now now we are in the fourth wave. And how would you describe, describe where we're at now?
1: Yeah. So we talked about the, the open for summer announcement. Yep. And, you know, at that point, we – We were in a good place. Uh, Our cases had dropped very low in Alberta. Hospitalizations were going down, too. They always lag, but they were going down. And I think everybody agreed we needed to get back to some sort of normal. We needed to open things up. People needed to have something. We'd pushed vaccinations. Many people had received them. You know, This is the reward for getting it, right, is you need life to go back to normal. That's what we were hoping for. but from a from a medical perspective perspective uh, those of us who have been watching this have watched other places around the world because alberta has not led the way in anything we have lagged behind most of the world in the timing of our waves and it was quite clear to see even at the early part of summer that the Delta variant was gaining hold in many parts of the world and that even reasonable vaccination levels were not having the effect we hoped and that the unvaccinated were getting sick in much higher numbers than they did before and getting sicker. And there were hospital systems all over the world being overwhelmed. And we could see that happening clearly. And there was no reason to think it wouldn't happen here uh, and you know in retrospect and the government finally released their their modeling they had looked at the experience in the UK which was a little bit unique in that they had a delta wave with cases that didn't have a lot of hospitalizations or deaths at that time yeah and that was unique, so that was great. Uh, but it sounds like their plan was just let's have that experience, rather than looking at why was it different there than it has been elsewhere, and how can we use that to plan here. So it was a little bit of hoping for the best and refusing to plan for the worst. Whereas I think most of us would have agreed we should reopen, we should try to get back to normal, but we need to watch what's going on and we need to have a plan to react if this delta gets out of hand. And that's what we feel like was constantly downplayed and delayed until it was essentially too late too late
2: and a a lot of some I've heard some epidemiologists or virologists say delta is sort of like a brand new virus in, in a way compared to the wild
1: strain it is yeah I mean it's it's it it does the same sort of things but it definitely is more severe in younger people uh it's it's kind of a, I don't know. I call it, I call it the Russian roulette. You know, if if you if you're going to get COVID, uh, which you're going to be exposed to at some point now, uh, and you're not vaccinated, uh, you're you're playing Russian roulette. Like most people who play Russian roulette, probably survive and do fine because they didn't get shot. Um, but we don't have any way to really accurately predict who is going to get really sick. There's some people that are clearly at higher risk because of health or age, and that's still the case. But it can still it can be anybody now. Um, youngest kids are still the safest, but some of them will still get sick. And every kind of five, ten years older age group, there's just a, more of a chance that someone is going to get really sick with it. and we don't really have a way to predict exactly who that's going to be. So that's that's one thing that makes us a different pandemic. And then it's transmissibility. Uh, it's just much easier to catch. It's been compared to chickenpox or measles as far as how quickly you can get it just being in the same air as someone else. So a lot of the, uh, I guess, the hygiene theater from the earlier waves of the pandemic of putting up plexiglass shields and washing hands all the time and scrubbing everything down isn't that effective when something is going through the air. And there's been a lot of official resistance to recognize exactly how well COVID is spread in the air. I think because it would mean a lot of policy changes that people aren't willing to make uh, but it's it's certainly easier to get. And we see people who are getting it, and most of the time they have no idea where it came from. Sometimes there's a family member who might have got it first, but most people just don't have no idea.
2: And then the other thing I hear you saying is that um, this fourth wave is be- being affected by uh, government policy or lack of uh, preparedness or making change I don't know how you want it. how would you explain how <laughs> would you talk about that
1: yeah I mean there's a few things I think the most I think the the most common criticism uh, among those who are criticizing the official response to the fourth wave is that the, the message was just wrong uh, and regardless of what you do or don't do the messaging is important Uh, The message we got in the early summer was, the pandemic is over, Um, we're out of the worst of it, some more people might get sick, but it doesn't really matter, it's not going to overwhelm the health system. And this message was put out at the same time as we were being encouraged to be vaccinated because there was still not a high enough level of vaccination throughout the province. And this message, I think, just made people complacent, made them think, well... I've heard some things about this vaccine, like maybe there's side effects or maybe it was rushed. Mm -hmm. We need more long-term data because that stuff's all out there. And people heard that and they heard the the pandemic's over and they thought, well, why would I get the vaccine now? I'm just going to wait until uh, maybe I'll need it later. Maybe I won't need it. And I think a lot of people made choices based on that. Uh, And the messaging that it's not serious has also encouraged people to maybe have riskier behaviors than they would being in close proximity with a lot of people, uh, not paying attention to see if numbers are changing when we don't hear anything from the government for almost the entire summer. It's, there's an effect. I mean, a lot of people say, and they're right, that, you know, you can make rules, but if people aren't necessarily going to follow them, they don't want to, and that's true. Um, But there's an effect that I've started calling the emergency alert effect that we've seen in the ER. There's been a couple times now when the province has put out their uh, emergency alert, public health emergency to widely disseminate the message that, hey, we're in a bad wave of COVID right now. And every time that's happened, um, we have seen almost all the visits to the ER dry up immediately, <laughs> uh, at least for a short period of time. And I think what that is is it's that message that hey, there's something serious going on, and people get that message, and then they avoid the hospital because a they're worried that we're overwhelmed, uh, b they don't want to get in the way of someone who needs more help than they do, or c they're worried they might catch something if they come to the hospital. And so mm-hmm. a combination of those. Factors, people stay away. It wears off eventually. People have to still come, right? Uh, and we don't want them to stay away if they need to come. If you need health, if you need emergency care, you come to the ER. Uh, but I think that's just an example of how important the messaging is. When the message is put out that there's a problem, people change their behavior and people take it seriously. And when that message is not put out there, it doesn't matter how many doctors are tweeting that there's a problem. You know, the government says this is okay, so it must be okay. If if, if it was not safe to... To party in a tent at the stampede, they would tell me it's not safe, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and people believe that, whether or not they actually believe anything else the government says. Yeah. Uh, so I think that was the most significant issue, and of course, there's policies that we know have worked to slow spread uh, the restrictions, the partial shutdowns, the mask mandates, all those things play a role they're all political issues and questions and you know you can debate what's necessary what's not but uh, but first you just need to have that acknowledgement that yeah there's a problem and we need to do something and it felt like we just did not have that until far too late
2: you're in the er now what's the fourth wave like for you as a doctor and the staff what what are you experiencing per in you know in the fourth wave?
1: the The fourth wave started in the summer. The summer began as a return to normal busyness that we hadn't seen since early 2020. Um, we saw all of the usual stuff again that had kind of petered out during most of the pandemic. Uh, summers are always busy in the ER. Uh, that's just a normal part of the cycle, uh, and we were seeing all the usual stuff. Plus, we were seeing a lot of I don't have a family doctor anymore in Lethbridge. That's been an issue here. We were seeing that. uh, And then we were starting to slowly see more and more people with COVID again. Uh, And again, younger people, unvaccinated and vaccinated but certainly the the unvaccinated ones were sicker and were having to be admitted to the hospital occasionally i admitted several people who had had covid before at christmas and needed to be admitted again in the summer and so i thought okay you know this could still affect a lot of people right now and yeah. that was just another clue that you know we're maybe not as safe as we think we are right now uh and and over time we've we've seen more of it um The emergency department is not like a a COVID unit. It's not, we're not always full of people with COVID. There's some days when we feel like that's a lot of what we're doing is gowning up and testing people who are sick. And there's a lot of colds going around too. And we test a lot of people that come back negative because they just have a cold virus, right? And sometimes you don't know until you test because it may be a mild case, but people want to know so they can keep others around them safe. Um, But we're getting quite accustomed to seeing the sick patients too. Every day there's, we're admitting over the last several weeks, every day we're seeing at least a handful of people who are quite ill with COVID, um, who need to come into the hospital. Some directly to ICU, some to a medical unit where they'll be watched to see if they deteriorate further. And again, they look as I described before. Um, you know, usually this is usually people in their 30s to 60s that we're seeing most of the time, who are you know may have some other health problems, but are generally living normal, healthy lives, and and they just are kind of plowed down by this virus and having trouble breathing and uh they need to come into hospital and um yeah it's we're it's very routine for us to treat now i guess in in one sense Uh, um we've seen it enough yeah
2: so is leth is is the lethbridge or the regional hospital are we at the point of um running out of room at this moment or are we holding our own
1: yeah, for for the last several weeks we have been full essentially as far as our our usual uh, COVID capacity goes, and um, you know normally we have about fourteen ICU beds. Um, currently we're running twenty four, uh, and that is because. We have converted the old labor and delivery floor into an overflow COVID space. We have extra ventilators there. We've taken some of the ventilators out of operating rooms and moved them over there. Some of our transport vents that we usually use to transfer patients between hospitals are being used in patient rooms. Um, uh, We have a COVID, a single unit in the hospital that's been dedicated to COVID as needed from time to time during the pandemic. It was reopened in August. Uh and normally it holds other patients, right? Mm-hmm, but it's just mm-hmm. become the dedicated COVID unit when needed. Uh, it's been full for a few weeks and we have overflow into another unit. The hospital itself has not, you know, been bursting at the seams, as sometimes people get the impression. But that's largely because of all the cancelled surgeries. You know, there's an entire unit of the hospital that's usually post-op patients recovering. That's not there anymore because we've stopped operating on people, uh, except in extreme emergencies. So this space is now being used as part of that overflow space. And uh, it's. I think it's more staffing even the space that's been the limiting factor. They've had to redeploy staff who work in other units to cover the new ICU spaces and to help out in the old ICU. And so they don't have the staff to run operating rooms and staff other units the way they would as well. And, and that's really been what this over capacity plan is throughout the province at this point is turning space into ICU care spaces and moving people to help out and then canceling this other stuff that is routine medically necessary things that unfortunately now people are missing.
2: How's how's your morale? How's your spirit and other colleagues in the hospital doing in this fourth wave as it seems like the strategy is just to to make more space for COVID and overwhelm you and I mean mm-hmm. I, I I would be afraid that folks are on edge of burnout sometimes or low morale but
1: yeah uh, absolutely there's a lot of burnout a lot of frustration um uh, the ER, if you like, is a place where, and in the hospital in general, we have a little bit of dark humor. I guess, if you like, it's part of the way, part of the way you <laughs> yeah. cope because we see terrible yeah. things all the time, and yeah. and we, you know, we're humans, and we, you know, we see bad things happen in people that remind us of our family members, and and so yeah. there's a little bit of the, kind of the dark humor that you use to cope, and and so that's there, and and there's a lot of, uh, of an exasperation feeling when it comes to you know, the mostly unvaccinated patients who are the ones getting sick is, you know, you kind of throw your arms up and say, well, you know, how could we have made it more clear that you should be vaccinated? And uh, But we have to not let that affect the care we give uh, because we still, these people are still humans. They've made their decisions for whatever reasons, many times under the influence of a lot of bad information that people don't know how to discern. And so we... Uh, you know, I had a, one of my colleagues uh, talking about this and he he said, you know, you know, when I get one of these, you know, sick COVID patients, you know, I'll give him a little bit of the gears first about why didn't you get vaccinated and, you know, try to find out what's going on, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. make it clear that, you know, that would have helped. Uh, but then after that, he said, I always tell them, but that doesn't matter now. You know, we're not going to treat you differently. We're going to give you the best care that we can. And he says that really makes people feel reassured uh, and safe. And that is... That, of course, is what we want to do um, now there's the other side of it, and you've certainly heard that I'm sure in the media of people who patients who are belligerent and refuse to believe they have covid or you know are demanding alternative treatments yeah. I haven't personally encountered a lot of that uh, it, there's probably other people that have encountered a lot more of it. Um, uh, But, you know, we, we're used to dealing with belligerent patients too. Uh, You know, we treat a lot of mental illness and uh, drug induced uh, behavior uh, changes in people that we just have to kind of, uh, I don't want to say accept the abuse. We're not supposed to accept abuse, but in reality, uh, that's what we do sometimes. And we, uh, we give the best care that we can, Uh, but it certainly affects morale. Uh, And, You know, we're used to getting that from patients from time to time, um, but we're less used to getting that in the community. And I think that's one thing that's really been uh, a drag and a morale um, challenge for many people working in healthcare today is Mm -hmm. that everyone knows someone who's a family member or a friend or an acquaintance who has kind of bought into a lot of the anti COVID narrative or anti-vaccine and they come and they, they question and they doubt. And, and when you spend your whole day, uh, you know, taking care of people that are, critically ill or telling family members that someone's died, and then you have people that don't see it, you know, coming in your face and challenging you, of course, that's going to be disheartening. And everyone, I think, deals with that in a different way. And and I, I've mentioned this in a recent social media post that, you know, even in healthcare, we're very siloed and we see what we see. I don't experience the ICU uh, and I don't have the same experience that an ICU doctor or nurse would have, you know, they're dealing with the COVID patients all the time and the families and the deaths, you know, we see them and we get them in a the hospital and we put them where we need, they need to be. It's a different experience and someone working in a different part of the hospital or in a clinic somewhere is going to have a different experience too. And that's just part of the beast.
2: So, I know you have um you have a blog, you have a Twitter account, you're on Facebook. Um, why did you choose to speak out vocally about this whole uh, issue around Covid? Um, and uh, you know some of your posts have been have been the news. <laughs> I mean, you've given the data where no one else is really talking about it. So what inspired you or led you to do this?
1: Yeah, I don't know. no one else is doing it, I guess, and that's not entirely true. There's quite a few physicians around Alberta who have spoken out spoken out many more vocally than I have. Uh, but there was kind of no one doing it in our area. And I think that people really they want to know what's happening in their communities right we 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 get the provincial data and we hear that this is happening that's happening but people want to know what about here right is it really happening here cuz i can't see it you know i i go to my job i send my kids to school mm-hmm. I hear, you know mm-hmm. i know someone who got covid and they got better and uh, i heard someone that died but i don't see it and so they want to know what's really happening here and it's probably easier to trust a voice that's local that maybe you know or someone you know knows Uh, And I feel like there's so much misinformation out there and so much, uh, not necessarily denialism, there is that, but there's also just... Natural ignorance, I guess, and and, and not in a pejorative sense, but in the sense that, you know, you don't see what's going on if you're not in healthcare, then you couldn't, you wouldn't know. And and that makes all of our pandemic experiences very different. Hmm. Uh, If your only experience is that you had to take your kids out of school, you had to work from home, you can't go do these things you like to do and you don't really see anything bad happening, then of course you're going to wonder, is this really necessary? Mm -hmm, Is this all mm -hmm. all necessary? And that's a very normal reaction. And so one of the things that I've tried to do is say, this is what we're seeing from a healthcare perspective. And this is why, because when you don't, if you don't understand how the COVID virus spreads, what it does, and even if most people are okay, if you don't understand what that, you know, four percent hospitalization means for our system or the one percent ICU rate, then you start to question and you start to wonder. I guess you look for alternative explanations. And like that's where the conspiracy theories gain traction is like what's gonna what explains why this is happening around us? And I've always felt that having an accurate understanding of what the pandemic is and what's happening and what the potential results are if we don't act. That answers all of those questions. If you understand it well enough, then you know exactly why it's so important that we don't let COVID spread rampantly through unvaccinated populations, how it's going to affect everybody, even if you're not going to die of it, and just how impossible it is for an individual to make choices to protect themselves in the absence of a more collective public efforts to control a spread. It's not like avoiding getting syphilis or something where you can pretty much make a choice where you're not going to get it. Uh, you you can't do that with a in pandemic and you we need the collective action. And I think when people can kind of understand that, then a lot of that need for the conspiracy theories evaporates and you can understand what's happening. And you can still have those valid discussions about how much is too much, what are the harms of the lockdowns, what are the harms of missing all these things in childhood and the economic problems. But you need to have the accurate information to have those discussions. So circling back to your question, why me? Why am I speaking out? I was motivated by that, kind of that that truth-telling, that education. You know, I want people to know this. I I, I know good people that were questioning why we're doing things. And they're and they're good, rational people, but they just didn't see what I was seeing. And so I wanted to share that so that people could could see that. And yeah, and I mean, early in the pandemic, I was kind of doing that just with closer groups of friends and family who were like, "What's going on? What do we need to know? Uh, do I need to not take Advil? Do I need to buy toilet paper or whatever?" And uh, and and I and they found that really useful uh, to have someone they could trust. And so I started spreading a little more widely, and it it took traction on social media and just went from there. And and I've just continued to speak out as I can, and hoping that it's helping someone.
2: Well, in a way, what I hear you saying is uh, good data helps us to to uh, help the common good of our society, plus also care of duty. I mean, without that, we're sort of flying in the dark. Like you said, uh, if I get weird data from somewhere, it can do different things. But good data makes good decisions. Is that what you're trying to say?
1: yeah yeah exactly and you know more people are looking at data than ever did before because all of a sudden this affects them and and these numbers that are coming out on tv are affecting whether or not they can go to the movies or uh, whether their kids can play sports and so suddenly they're interested in well what does this mean and and of course they want to know and um and we're not, we're not all in the world and in the educational field, or we we don't all have the educational experience or work fields, where we look at that routinely, and so it becomes hard to interpret, and and so and there's and there's so many people out there that are trying to interpret that data for people and make it manageable, sure. and and a lot of what I've been doing is just kind of amplifying and passing on that information that I found from people who know a lot more about this than I do. I am not an epidemiologist or a statistician, um, but. But having that that background in medicine and science has, you know, I think given me the ability to discern a little bit better of what is the good data, what are the good sources? And then I've been able to pass that on to other people who may know me or have come to trust some of the things I've shared. and And that's really how we we spread information, I think, in the social media era, uh, era through those that we that we trust.
2: Well, and with data, like just yesterday you uh, you posted on Twitter um, some messages from the uh, ICU folks, and uh, the the fourth one that you said, you know, they share my concern that our current trajectory is not sustainable with the ongoing high average new daily case rate. Close to 1% of all new cases announced each day eventually need ICU care. So like with the data you have right now and your experience in Lethbridge, like where are we going?
1: Well, wish I had a crystal ball. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it seems that provincially, and I would echo this probably locally, we're at a bit of a plateau recently. Obviously, I haven't seen numbers from this past weekend yet, but the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of fluctuating around the same seven day average for new cases. Um, ICU levels are kind of leveling off. But they're leveled off at an area that is not sustainable simply because of the resource management it's required. You know, we're only able to sustain this for two reasons. One is that we have made changes to keep people out of the healthcare system that need it already. You know, they say we haven't started the triage protocol, but in a way, we already have, in the sense that we have said if you have a surgery that doesn't have to be done immediately, then you're not getting it now you know, ideally you should get it now, but you're not going to because we don't have the space or we may not have the space to care for you postoperatively. And, so that's one reason we've been having the space and the other one is that people are dying uh, and that clears room in the hospital and the intensive care unit uh, but coupled to that and I did mention this in that tweet as well is there a lot of people that have been in the ICU for weeks on end um, one of the responses to my tweets there was from somewhere saying yeah we've had people on ECMO so that'll be Calgary Edmonton that's the yeah. heart lung bypass for months yeah. and wow. so every time you admit a handful of new people to the ICU some of them are going to die some of them are going to stay there for a few weeks, some of them might need months of care. And so that just keeps adding up over time. And if you don't bend down the curve and slow the new caseload, then at some point you need to keep adding beds. And that is, you know, it's not sustainable for the healthcare workers who are working in that environment and, you know, undergoing all this stress and trauma, quite honestly, to care for these people. In many cases, who didn't need to be this sick, uh, that, that, that the cumulative effect, I think, is going to be pretty severe, severe on some of our our nurses and doctors caring for these people, Uh, you know, and the cumulative effect of these delayed surgeries, cancers that are not being taken out, that are going to get worse, that may be getting past the point where they're curable because of that. And it's gonna be really hard to measure that effect, but it's going to be there. So there's a big call for, you know, on social media for the fire break in Alberta, which is, you know, the analogy that this is like, COVID is like a forest fire burning through us and there's still mm-hmm. a lot of trees that haven't burned down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the trees being the, <laughs> the unvaccinated people, yeah. you know, and it does feel like that the plan has been to kind of just let it go, let it burn. And eventually, because eventually there's going to be enough people vaccinated and immune that, you know, it's not going to spill the spread as quickly and it will slow down. I just don't know when that is. I I don't know how to do the modeling or what all the data would be to do that. And some people have, and they're saying it could go a long time. Um, And so the call for the fire break is we need to do something. It doesn't have to be forever. It has to, but we want to bend that curve down, break some of these transmission chains so that we can get transmission down. And you have to combine that with getting more people vaccinated because that really is the long-term way out of this.
2: So so, how can us folks listening to this in the community support healthcare workers in our communities and, and maybe those who were close to, you know, some of us might have them in our home.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's obviously going to vary, uh, you know, from person to person. If you have someone in your life who's affected by this. Certainly, there's been appreciation from the kind of letters, the gifts, and the cars that come to the hospital, to the ERs, the ICUs, the you know box of Halloween candy or whatever. <laughs> um, and because yeah, it's nice to have the treat. Um, but I think mostly it's 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 nice to see that even though there's a noisy minority out there that's uh, that's really you know there's the voices out there that are saying that. You know, the healthcare providers are complicit in some sort of a plot to, um, you know, poison people with vaccines or trick people into thinking they're dying of COVID when it's something else, and any number of, of conspiracies or theories basically anything to avoid facing the, the truth. Uh, and it, it turns on us and it certainly affects us. And so th- these we know these people are a minority, uh, but they're noisy. And uh, so having those gifts and those words of appreciation just kind of shows us that there are those people out there who believe us and who respect us and are, are trying to do something to show us that. Um, <clears throat> the other thing... Uh, that i would say is you know there's been a lot of the narrative especially early on of health healthcare workers as heroes and uh, you know and then there are villains and <laughs> and, <laughs> and and, and uh, you know sure that's not a bad thing i guess but we don't we don't see ourselves as heroes we are professionals who have trained we've invested years of our lives uh, sometimes thousands of dollars to try and become experts in a field of the field of medicine or science as it may be and we spent all this effort to become experts at what we do because that's what we want to do we want to take care of the sick we want to help make them better and we want to help people stay well and not need uh, our care and so i, I think that uh, that really just believing <laughs> uh believing that healthcare worker in your life that yes Things are bad, and yes, it's real. And no, I I don't need, I probably don't have information you haven't heard uh, that I found on YouTube that you should know about this. Uh, it shows a lot of respect and support. I mean, an analogy I like to use is you know when you're getting on an airplane do you do you go inspect it to see if the mechanic did a good job or mm-hmm. when you're halfway over the ocean do you go tell the pilot how to fly the plane and uh, you know maybe you found a video about some air crash somewhere and you think you have something important to tell him <laughs> well you know he's probably learned about that too right and yeah and so i guess just recognizing that you know healthcare is complicated you know these these scientific issues are complex a lot of the the uh alternate theories, I guess, if you like, that I see out there are really based on looking for simplistic explanations that sound reasonable when you don't understand the complexity behind it. And so I think just recognizing that just because you found a video on YouTube that made something sound simple and understandable and goes against the the traditional medical narrative, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you found something that that people who dedicate their lives to this have not heard about or not considered or it's going to be news right and you know everybody is going to deal with it their their own way you know if you're close to a healthcare worker uh, especially someone who works in the thick of covid in the icu or maybe they have a lot of patients who are missing their surgeries and are angry and they are frustrated for their patients um, you just need to find out what they need i guess some of them are going to want to vent their frustrations in a safe place uh, some of them are going to want to not have to think about outside of work and just do something else to recharge and refresh themselves. Um, but they're all going to need the support of their people and uh, not the questioning and the accusations. You know, we, we like to answer questions um, when they're genuine questions, I think, but not when we get the sense that someone is trying to, to uncover some sort of dark secret that, that they imply that we're keeping.
2: That you're somehow hiding there in the hospital mm-hmm. It was interesting as I was listening to you talk about that. It reminded me of a sociological bias called complexity bias that uh, often we rather believe in a simple uh, lie or untruth instead of a complex issue. And we look Mm -hmm. for those simple things to somehow survive and COVID is a lot more complicated. Um,
1: Yeah. Although in some ways the way out is the simple way now, right? Yeah. What is the way out? Well, as time goes by and the, the data mounts that people who are sick and dying almost are all unvaccinated, right? I mean, we have vaccinated sick in the hospital, yes. And these are the same people that were at risk before, right? They have suppressed immune systems. They have very frail health. Anything could be, you know, what puts them over the edge. And if they get COVID, even with a vaccine, sometimes that's it, right? Um, but overwhelmingly, the evidence is showing that the, the people in hospital and people dying are those who are not vaccinated. It's very clear um, the danger of getting COVID is much, much higher than the risk of any side effect from the vaccine in probably every age group. We're waiting for final data in kids, but it's almost mm-hmm. certainly going to be the same. And we're seeing that the, the the you know the people that are motivated to not believe that, and in many cases, you know, there are people financially profiteering off of selling ivermectin prescriptions or other alternate therapies, you know, they've got their motivations for doing this. Um, but there's a lot of people who have kind of bought into that narrative and they're highly motivated to keep it going and to not admit that maybe they've been hoodwinked. And we're seeing mm-hmm. more and more complexity in the theories that are trying to explain away the truth of what's happening. So the, the, the simple answer right now is, if you're in an outbreak area and you can limit your contacts and wear a mask, you're less likely to get sick. And if you get vaccinated, you're less likely to get sick and far less likely to die. That's the simple truth at this point. And the other complex theories—I mean, there's there's so many and they they're all different. You know, to try and explain that something else is going on, they're becoming increasingly convoluted and complex uh, because, you know they keep having to change their narrative i think i don't know but yeah and and yes the actual science behind it is complicated and you know things change with variants and with new information so yeah but part of science changes all the time and we change our approach based on that and we have many times during the pandemic but we're getting to the point where yeah the message is straightforward vaccination we hope that two or maybe three doses is going to be you know long term there may be boosters this may become seasonal it's hard to know exactly where it's going but what we can do now is pretty simple. It's to be vaccinated and to try and prevent spread when you're in an area where there's a lot of cases, which is pretty much everywhere in the province right now.
2: That's right. So as, as we wrap up our time together, how are you staying resilient through all this as a medical professional?
1: <sighs> yeah. Um, well... There's maybe there's the <laughs> the workaholic component, and I listened to one of your recent uh, interviews about trauma response. So maybe that's oh, the yes. trauma response <laughs> overworking during it. Uh, so maybe that's not the healthy one. But uh, but for me, a lot of it has been keeping myself updated with information mm-hmm. and sharing the information with others. You know, something we were talking about here. Yeah, and it's really a, a, a me trying to do what I can, right? Um, and I've done times when I've just kind of gone through social media. And if I see like a public discussion on a news article, that's spreading misinformation. I'll just go in and correct it. And I try to avoid getting drawn into an argument. I just it's it's not to change the mind of the poster. It's to to say to anyone who's reading on the outside and wondering, no, that's not true. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, whether you want to believe me or not, I'll just tell you that's not true. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but some other things uh, that I've tried to do is is try to do as much. Uh, normal stuff as you can, right? With family and friends, and you know, particularly early in the pandemic, that was important to you know make stuff normal as you can. Um, and I'm a person of faith as well, and so that helps in my spirituality and gives a, a long-term perspective, I think, on uh, on things. And you know, whether whether you're relying on on faith or not, this this is not a new thing in human history, right? We've are you know we've gone through these many times in our in our human history, and and so you have to remember that you know this too will pass at some point, and and uh, maybe normal will be a bit different. Um, but you know we don't get to pick our our trials in life. Uh, we just kind of pick how we deal with them. And I think yeah. I think that's an acceptance that's important in dealing with anything that something comes to you. you Can't always affect what happens, whether it's a personal trial or this you know collective experience. All we can do is decide uh, how we how we deal with it. And along that, maybe one of the most important things for me has been, and this has been the case in many other things in my life, is recognizing that I can't control or change what anyone else does. All I can do is change what I do. Uh, and I think that helps to kind of let go a lot, uh, especially for those of us who are in healthcare. And, you know, sometimes you want to, you know, grab someone by the neck and say, well, or not that, <laughs> you want to grab someone by the shoulders and say, why did you get vaccinated? Right. Or why won't you get vaccinated? You know, you're clearly at yeah. high risk and you're, you're just, you're just putting it off and you don't even know why. Um, and, and we can, we can give people information, we can encourage, but we can't make anyone do anything. We can't change it. Uh, uh, you know, even, even when we push for, for, for laws or restrictions, we're still not making people do things right uh and you have to find a, a level of peace i think in knowing that you're doing what you can but you're not you're not responsible for other people in that sense so yeah that's one of the ways i deal with it
2: <laughs> you no know, that's really wise we can't we can only control what we can control and that's not a lot
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> at, true <laughs>
2: sometimes um for us as we end our time at what would you tweet out to us today, you know, (laughs) as we as we, as we go off and, um, around this subject?
1: Well, you know, everyone wants to know what's, what's the way out. What do we do? Uh, and nobody knows for sure, I think. Um, and, and how do we, how do we reach the people that, that don't want to, don't want to be vaccinated. Don't want to. Don't want to believe the the official message as to how we get out of this, and I think a key is is really trying more to show, uh, you know, some compassion, some understanding. Um, and certainly, you can get some compassion fatigue when you've been trying to do this for a while and you don't feel like it's reciprocated. And again, you got to remember that I can only affect what I do. I can't affect what anyone else does, but. I've started to see a lot of the people who are unvaccinated and sick uh, as victims in a sense, Um, because there is a lot of confusing information out there. There's a lot of voices and even people with credentials uh, and, you know, scientific experience who have put their voice behind some of these incorrect theories and some of these uh, things that so doubt. And, and, you know, we can't all understand how this all works. We can't all know exactly the best way to make a decision. And we are tribal people and uh, social media may have made us more so. And we we want to belong to our group. I'm, not, I'm by no means a psychology expert, but I've read a bit about this conspiracy <laughs> theory stuff recently. And, yeah. you know, people identify most with their tribes and wanting to belong. And so if your tribe is the vaccines are a tool for government control and I'm not going to get one. Then even if you start to see stuff that makes you question that, then it's difficult step. It's a difficult step for you to acknowledge that maybe that's wrong and, uh, go against your tribe, so to speak. So I think we need to be compassionate to people and recognize that there's more at play here than just, you know, you know, picking a side, right. And, uh, and there's a lot of people that just aren't sure and uh, you know have legitimate concerns. And so I think if we can uh, communicate with people and try to understand where they're coming from, and you know from a healthcare perspective, and I've, I've seen this from other uh, physicians on Twitter, trying to really show uh, the emotional side of it. As doctors were often good at, here's the data, this is what this trial says, this is what this data says, the numbers clearly say this is the right decision. But we need to share too what motivates us, and that really is our our compassion. You know, there's a, you know, if you're a, if you're seeing people dying from this and you know it's preventable, you're trying to spread that message out of a concern for others that this not happened to them. And I think if we can make that more clear, that becomes a much a stronger message uh, it's not it's not a fight it's not an arguments and that doesn't mean that I'm I haven't got into arguments online myself it's it's a very easy thing to, a very easy trap to fall into but it's far more effective to say look you know I I care about what's happening to my patients I care about what's happening in my community You know, I don't want people to get sick. I don't want us to have to do lockdowns and shutdowns and keep kids out of sports and all this stuff going on for for longer. And and this is the way out, is to control the spread when there's a flare and to be vaccinated so that you're protected and the people around you are protected. And we need to, you know... We need to show compassion for others, but we need to but that doesn't mean diluting a message of truth, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. it's not it's not loving to accept everyone's views if you know their view might get them killed. You know, yes. like Yeah. It's it's more caring to say, look, I understand this is difficult. I understand this is confusing, lots of information out there but I am motivated to help you understand this because it could mean your life. It can mean the life of someone around you. And that's what motivates me. And so that's something I'm trying to do a little bit more. And I don't know that I'm great at it, but, uh, I think the more we can do that, uh, the more people we're going to be able to reach.
2: Well, thank you for your compassion. Um, thank you for your time. And, uh, and thank you for your work in our hospital system. And please pass on our, our deep appreciation to all the staff at the
1: hospital. I'll do what I can. Thank you very much, and thanks for the the gifts that I know you guys have helped coordinate to provide for the hospital. That's certainly appreciated. Yeah. Yeah, you're welcome.
0: What sparked your curiosity in this episode? Do you sense a resiliency that was hidden before? From the conversation, where is hope leading you? If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, consider rating it, and sharing it with family and friends. This podcast is produced by MacKillop United Church. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for the generosity of all of our donors. If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com or mckillopunited.ca slash donate. Peace and blessings to you.